Thank you for listening to this week's podcast from Victory Baptist Church in Hope Mills, North Carolina. I pray that God uses this message to help you worship God, strengthen your relationship, and glorify Him. Without further ado, here is this week's message. There we go. All right. Well, if you all would uh, go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. We're in Luke chapter 5 this morning. Uh, So we've been walking through the book of Luke. We started this back in December with our Christmas series. Um, And we've just continued through it. We're looking at the life of Jesus as told by Luke, kind of as a a part of our unofficial theme this year is a a return to fundamentals. Um, And there's nothing more fundamental to the Christian life than Jesus's life and his mission. Um, And so we're calling this an unexpected king because, well, Jesus's ministry is unlike anything that that had come before. His, His kingship is unlike any other king in history, whether before him or after him or any that we might see in the future that are not him. Uh, Jesus is an unexpected king in many, many ways. Well, this morning we see Jesus, um, and he's at a party at Levi's. And so the title of the sermon this morning is Party at Levi's. Um, and we're going to be in verses 27 through 39. And the main idea of this passage, the main idea here is that Jesus and the gospel are different. Not necessarily different from each other, but different from anything else that might come along. Jesus and the gospel are different. And so I have this broken into three divisions. Um, There's Levi's conversion, Levi's party, and then some uh, parables about new and old. So I'm going to pray and we'll get into this text. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we open up your word this morning, I pray that you will open up our hearts to hear from you that you will illuminate your word for us so that we can hear from you. Help us, God, to apply it to our lives so that we can glorify you more in everything that we do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So I'll go ahead and get started here with verses 27 and 28. Uh, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. So here it says, after this. Well, last week we saw that Jesus was, was in a house and there was a huge crowd and, and uh, such a big crowd that they couldn't get the, the paralytic into Jesus. And so they, they dug a hole through the roof and lowered the paralytic in and Jesus forgave him. Well, they brought him there for a physical healing, but Jesus forgave him. And the Pharisees said, well, now wait a second. Nobody can forgive sins but God alone. And so you must be blaspheming by claiming to forgive sins. Uh, and Jesus said, well, in order for you to know that I have the authority to forgive sins. He tells the paralytic man to get up and and to walk out, carry his mat and walk out. And so he does. And so Jesus proves his authority to heal and to forgive sins. And so now Jesus has left that house and he goes out and he sees Levi, this tax collector. So this is, we're talking about this tax collector named Levi this morning. So in Hebrew and Israelite culture, (laughs) names were very important. You could tell a lot about what the parents wanted for their child and what they wanted their children to grow into by the name that they gave their, cho- their child. In the Old Testament, Levi was the father of the tribe of priests. In order to be a priest, then an Israelite must have been from the tribe of Levites. So here, these uh, first century parents, to name their child Levi, well, I think they were kind of hinting at something there. The parents probably wanted their child to grow up and live a life that served God, to live a life as a servant of God. Instead, Levi grows up and becomes a tax collector. You see, the tax collectors were seen as traitors. They worked for the Roman government, and they were often corrupt, taking more money than what was necessary. 
They worked for the same Roman, Roman government that ruled over the Israelites. And so this Levi, who was supposed to, to grow up and serve the holy and righteous God, is instead serving the evil and corrupt Roman government. But Jesus walks up to this traitor and he says, follow me. Jesus says, follow me. So he came up to this traitor and called him to follow him. This might not sound like a very formal invitation, but this is, uh, this is a good summary of how the, the rabbi-disciple relationship was started. See, a, a rabbi would go around in everyday life, and his disciples were following him. And so as, uh, as different situations arose or different objects came, apart, uh, came across their life, the rabbi would use these everyday situations to build an object lesson to teach his disciples how to act or what would glorify God or teach them lessons from the Old Testament. And so rabbis, they had a very discerning selection progress, process in calling their disciples. To get called by a rabbi was an honor in and of itself, but the most distinguished rabbis had the toughest selection process. Rabbis would usually choose their disciples from the most promising young men from the temple or the synagogue. But notice who Jesus is calling as his first disciples. At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus calls not some prestigious young scholar at the synagogue or from the temple. No, Jesus calls a group of fishermen. And now Jesus is calling a, a, a tax collector. See, these disciples that Jesus is calling, they would not have been accepted by the other rabbis. These disciples that Jesus was calling would have been rejected by the other rabbis. They probably wouldn't have even tried to apply to be a disciple for these other rabbis because their life or their, what they were doing didn't signify anything special about their uh, religiosity. All right? So Luke tells us how uh, Levi responds. It says, leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. See, Levi has the same response as the fisherman at the beginning of the chapter. See, I wonder what Levi's thought process was here. See, he had surely heard about this Jesus, this, this new teacher and healer who was uh, claiming to have the authority to forgive sins. Levi may have even seen some of these teaching sessions or healing sessions. Levi might have even been there when Jesus claimed to forgive sins. Maybe he wanted to go back in his life and change some things so that he wouldn't be seen as a traitor. So on that day, Levi sitting in his tax office, possibly contemplating his life choices that brought him to this point. And then here comes this miracle-performing rabbi. He comes along and he calls him to follow him. Luke doesn't hesitate. He simply leaves his old life behind and joins this group of disciples, this ragtag group of disciples. See, this is the same call that Jesus gives to each and every one of us. No matter where we come from or what we've done in the past, Jesus calls us to follow him. Jesus calls us to be his disciple. He calls us to surrender to him, to his teaching, and to follow him, even if we are ashamed of our past. He's not ashamed of our past because he has already took the pain and the punishment that we deserve. He already took that cost and paid it to make it right. Jesus took our shame and our guilt on the cross. And when we follow him, he doesn't see our guilt. Instead, he sees his own righteousness reflected back to him. Jesus is calling you to follow him. Will you follow him like Levi is here, or like Peter, James, and John at the beginning of the chapter? Will you leave your past and follow him? But Levi doesn't just follow Jesus. Look at what he does next. 
Picking up in verse 29, Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were reclining at the table with him. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So Levi hosts this grand banquet for Jesus. Levi throws a party and he invites all his friends. Levi was a tax collector, meaning that he probably lost a bunch of his uh, childhood Jewish friends. They probably saw what Levi was doing. They dropped that friendship long ago. So all he had left were his co-workers, these other tax collectors that were also despised by the Jews. Levi throws a party and he invites all these other sinners there. But the party's not for the sinners. The party is for Jesus. Levi throws a party to invite his new friends to meet this rabbi who has called him and changed his life. He wants his new friends to know Jesus too. And see, quite often, new believers have an excitement about their new relationship with Jesus, and they also have many friends who are not believers. That's a really good combination. See, when you have, when you have been a believer for years, it's quite easy to find ourselves with no lost friends. We find ourselves in our little holy huddles. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning. Even though we know that we're supposed to be taking the gospel to lost people, and we know that building relationships and friendships with these lost people is the most effective way to do that, a lot of times, if we're not careful, we find ourselves with no lost friends. But new believers will often still have a lot of friends who don't know Jesus. They have this great opportunity to share their new faith and to share this new Savior with their friends. And that's what Luke is doing here. And of course, we have a new believer. We've got this rabbi who's a little bit different than the other rabbis. And so here come the religious elites to to point out everything they're doing wrong. And they say, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So like I said earlier, it's easy for us as believers to surround ourselves with other believers, people who think like us and and act kind of like us. And for the most part, we, we behave the same way. But Levi, as a new disciple, he doesn't have this problem. He has a lot of lost friends. The religious elites, though, they, they have a problem with that. They see Levi's friends, and they want nothing to do with them. And they don't understand why Jesus and his disciples would associate with them. Those filthy sinners. Why would anybody want anything to do with them? See, it seems like they've forgotten that we are all sinners. None of us, not a single person in here, deserves God's love. None of us deserve to be Jesus' disciples. Salvation is truly a gift because there's nothing that we could do to earn it. There's nothing that we could do to deserve it. It must be freely given or we would never have it. These religious elites, they show us an attitude that we must always be wary to avoid, avoid in our own lives. Unfortunately, this attitude easily creeps into our lives and without even realizing it, we might accidentally teach it to our children and create this generational problem. We avoid this problem by remembering that we don't deserve salvation either, and we didn't earn it by making sure that we, have, we, have, we, we can keep that mentality in our mind by making sure that we have lost friends in our lives that we care about. But one thing that you'll notice throughout Jesus' ministry is that he has a, a lot of hostility for those who claim to be God's people, And they claim to speak with God's authority, but they act without love, and they push people away from God through their actions or teachings. 
And so Jesus' answer to the Pharisees and scribes hints at this hostility. Jesus replied to them, It's not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus is saying, Oh, y'all are so godly that you don't need me. You got this covered. You don't need salvation. Well, he's saying that sarcastically, of course, because when we fail to see our need for a Savior, we have a serious problem. In order to receive the salvation that Jesus offers, we must recognize that we are completely and totally incapable of earning it. That is the only way that we will be able to place our faith in Him. We recognize that Jesus is our only hope for salvation. These religious elites, see, they believe in their own self-righteousness. They think that they're good enough that they can earn salvation. In truth, it's not that they don't need salvation. Rather, their pride won't allow them to see their need for salvation. Their pride won't allow them to accept Jesus' salvation. See, we are all in need of salvation. Or to keep the analogy that Jesus has here, we're all sick and in need of a doctor. Jesus came for all of us, or at least any of us that will accept him. The Pharisees and scribes, see, they, they're not dumb. They understood what Jesus was implying with his, uh, with his phrase here. And so they try another attack. Then they said to him, John's disciples fast often and say prayers. And those of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, you can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. And see, the Pharisees questioned Jesus about fasting. And see, fasting is a way to seek God's will and God's presence in your life. It can also be a way to mourn or to show mourning over your sins. When we temporarily give up something so that we can focus on spending time with God or allowing Him to work in our lives, what we're doing is that we're teaching our physical urges that they are subservient to our spiritual health. Now, the Pharisees, they would have seen fasting as a way to show off their religiosity. They would have seen fasting as a way to show off how, how religious they are and how great they are. They would have seen this as a way to brag about themselves. Those who don't fast, the, the Pharisees would have seen them as lesser or minor leagues when it comes to their spirituality. But Jesus, again, points to the fact that they are missing the point. When we fast, we want to draw closer to God. But the disciples, they're already walking with God. They're following behind him step by step. A great compliment for a disciple would have been to, the, the phrase would have been to uh, um, let your rabbi's dust be on your face. Something along those lines. Basically, you're following your rabbi so close that as he's walking through the streets and kicking up dust, that, that dust is falling on you. That's how closely you're emulating your rabbi. But Jesus says, they're already walking with me. They don't need to fast to grow closer to me. They're already right here with me. They cannot grow any closer to him through fasting. Instead, they should fast after he leaves. Well, indeed, we see at the beginning of Acts that the disciples were in the upper room fasting after Jesus ascended. The imagery of the wedding and the groom are common when referring to Jesus and the church. It's common when referring, uh, in the Old Testament, referring to the, um, the Father and Israel. And this helps us to understand God's love for his people. 
But this is just the first of three parables that Jesus throws at him. So the next one starts in verse 36. He also told them a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. Let me tell you, I've struggled with this, um, with this parable since I was a child. And it wasn't until preparing for this sermon that God shed some light on it for me. You know, a lot of times when we have those moments, and you look back on it and you go, duh, how did I miss that for so many years? Because I look at it now and I'm like, oh, it's so simple. You have this old garment that's torn a hole in it. All right, so imagine you've got this old pair of jeans that you only wear when you're doing yard work or you're only, you're, you know you're going to be getting dirty. And so it's not a nice pair of jeans. It's an old pair of jeans. Now, those, that old pair of jeans might be really comfortable, but they're not nice, right? You wouldn't wear them to church or anything like that. You wouldn't wear them out and about on a night on the town because they're just kind of ratty looking. Well, you're out there and, and maybe you're doing yard work or something and you go to squat down to, to pick some weeds out of the garden and as you squat, you hear rip. Uh-oh. So you done ripped a hole in your jeans. So what you're going to do is you go inside the house and you, you find your, your nice, new, expensive jeans and you tear a, a, a bit of fabric out of the new ones to patch the old jeans. Well, that doesn't make any sense at all. That's what Jesus is saying here. No one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. See, I, I, for some reason, all these years that I struggled with this passage, I had the new and the old mixed up. I don't know what it was. Like I said, sometimes it's the simplest things that God just, it's like, oh, I can't believe I missed that. See, doing this would ruin the nice new jeans to fix a pair of jeans that were already way past their prime. And if we're honest with ourselves, we probably should have thrown them away a long time ago. What Jesus is saying is that these Pharisees have such a love for the law, or at least their idolized version of the law, that they cannot accept Jesus' salvation. So referring to the law, I'm talking about the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. They had such a love for their idolized version of the Mosaic covenant that they cannot accept the new covenant. Jesus brings a new covenant and institutes a new relationship between God and man. Now, I don't have time this morning to dig too deep into this, but thankfully, last year when we walked through the book of Hebrews, we talked a lot about the new covenant replacing the old covenant. So if you want more on that, you can go back in the YouTube files or back in our podcast and listen to those. Uh, but let me summarize it like this. Jesus comes and brings a new covenant, a better covenant, and replaces the old covenant. The new covenant is better because it is instituted by grace, and it is the answer to the old covenant, which was merely a, a shadow of the new covenant, which would be coming. See, if the Pharisees are going to hold to the new covenant so tightly, they're going to reject Jesus's salvation. The new patch, the new covenant, will not match the old covenant. Jesus continues, picking up in verse 37, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. It will spill and the skins will be ruined. No, new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and no one, after drinking old wine, wants new, because he says the old wine is better. See, this parable is building on the same theme as the last two. Jesus is bringing something new. Now he's comparing it to new wine. See, new wineskins, this new leather, would have some flexibility to it. So when the wine is fermenting and off-gassing, 
right? It's, it's, it's giving off these gases. And so the wineskin would have to stretch to allow that. If they put the new wine into old wineskins, these old wineskins would be you know, not so flexible. They'd be more brittle and, and dried out. And so when the, the wine is fermenting and, and off-gassing, it would cause those wineskins to bust. The old covenant is rigid. You must perfectly obey or you are guilty. It's that simple. The Mosaic covenant, you must obey perfectly or you're guilty. The old covenant shows us that we cannot live up to God's perfect standard of, of holiness. But the grace that Jesus brings, Jesus' grace is the new wine if you simply try to add Jesus' grace to the old covenant, you're going to burst those wineskins. Instead, we need new wineskins. We need a new covenant. Jesus' sacrifice is the means of grace so that we can be forgiven of our sins and accepted into God's family. So let's apply this to a common um, philosophy that we find in our modern secular culture. Let's replace that word philosophy. A common idol in our modern secular culture. It's the American dream. You see, the American dream is this ideology that in America, if you work hard enough and mostly play by the rules, no matter where you come from, you can be successful and gain wealth. I'm not saying that that ideology is sinful in and of itself. But when we take that ideology and base our faith on that, allow it to seep into our theology, that's very dangerous. The, the, the American dream says no matter where you came from, you can earn enough money or earn enough status to fix the brokenness in your life. That's the old wineskin that Jesus is referring to. It's merit-based salvation. You can do good enough to earn your salvation. It's a false gospel that teaches that we can fix our own problems. It's the idol of works. But the gospel is the new wine. The gospel starts with the reality that we are all sinners and we only deserve death and eternal punishment. No matter how hard we work, we cannot earn our salvation because we have failed God's perfect standard of holiness. But Jesus came and he lived the perfect life, meeting God's standard of holiness. But he was punished for our sins. He paid the price that we deserve. He bought our righteousness with his blood. Then through faith, he gives us that righteousness as a gift. We can't earn it. This unearned gift of the gospel goes against common sense. It goes against this merit-based American dream. It's the, the new wine that will burst old wineskins. Levi threw a party because he tasted the new wine and wanted his friends to have that taste as well. And that brings us to the last verse here. And no one, after drinking old wine, once knew because he says the old is better. What Jesus is saying is that those that place their faith in their own righteousness or their own merit for salvation cannot accept the gospel because the gospel goes against common sense. Common sense says that nothing good is ever free, but the gospel, the goodest good of all the goods, it's completely and totally free. That's why we call it amazing grace. Grace is getting something good that you don't deserve. But it is amazing because it is the goodest good of all the goods. We could never earn it. We could never deserve it. But God gives it to us anyway. It is truly amazing. So our application from this passage. 
We always get our application from our definition of a disciple, which we get from Matthew 4.19, where Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fish for people. Well, there's that call again, follow me. Follow me and I will make you fish for people. And so our three indicators of a disciple are knowing, being, and doing. So our no application is to know that the gospel is the new wine. We cannot simply add the gospel to other philosophies or ideologies. Instead, our entire worldview must be based on the gospel. Who Jesus is and what he has done for us is the greatest reality of all of human history. It's more real than 2 plus 2 equals 4. It's more real than the fact that George Washington was the first president of the United States. The fact that Jesus came and lived a perfect life and died for your sins is the most real event, the most real truth of all of human history. The gospel is the only real possibility for salvation that we have. Not the American dream, not karma, not humanism, not secularism, not communism, not even capitalism or conservatism. Therefore, Jesus will not simply allow himself to be added to a lifestyle or added to a bunch of other beliefs. But instead, he rightfully demands to be the one and only God in our hearts. Our B application is to be a host for non-believers. You see, Levi hosted a grand banquet at his house so that his non-believing friends could meet Jesus. I'm not saying that you always have to throw big parties at your house because some of us aren't really built for that. If you're, um, what is it, Uh, inside? Yeah, if you're an introvert, Throwing big parties at your house all the time is going to be exhausting and stressful and, and cause a lot of other problems. I'm not saying you always have to throw big parties at your house and invite a bunch of lost people over, but we should be regularly welcoming non-believers into our home, whether it's just one other family or one other person. Maybe sometimes throwing a big party, but not always. It could just be that one family or one person bringing them into our home. But it cannot simply be for the purpose of introducing them to Jesus. We do this, we invite lost people into our homes because we genuinely care about them. We build relationships with these people and we get to know them and we get to know their children and their families. We get to know them and they get to know us. As they get to know us and as we get to know them, the opportunity to share the gospel will present itself. In those times, we must be faithful to share. Similarly, in our church, We must be looking for opportunities to build relationships and hospitality with the lost in our community. Not just to share the gospel, but because the love of God drives us to care about our neighbors. And our final application point, our do, is to seek God's presence. You see, the the Pharisees asked Jesus why his disciples didn't fast. And his answer was that they were already close to him. But Jesus also said, The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. Well, we are in those days. Jesus has ascended into heaven, so he is not walking here with us. As a believer, we have his spirit in our hearts, but we still need to seek his presence in our lives. We still need to seek his wisdom in our lives. We still need to seek his leadership in our lives, and we do so through fasting. So make fasting a regular part of your uh, discipleship. I'm not saying it always has to be fasting from food. We've talked about fasting in the past. It can, it's a sacrifice of anything. You're giving up something. Uh, if it's something that's easy to give up, I wouldn't say that's a fast. But you're giving up something. You're sacrificing something to spend time with God. You're sacrificing something for a defined period of time to seek Him, to seek His wisdom, and to seek His presence in your life. So in those days, 
In these days, right now, we need to make a regular habit of fasting to seek God's presence and His will in our lives. So know that the gospel is the new wine. Be a host for non-believers and to seek God's presence in your lives. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you came to this earth to take the punishment for our sins. We thank you that you give that to us, that you give us salvation freely if we just believe in you. We just place our faith in you. Lord, this morning I pray that you will help us to, to truly understand that. And Lord, I pray that, that each and every one of us can continually, daily surrender to you in our lives. Father, I pray that you will help us to build relationships with the lost in our community and the lost in our lives because we love them, Lord. Your love working through us drives us to love them. And Lord, I pray that you will help us to, to seek your will and to seek your presence in our lives through fasting. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you again for listening to this week's message. If you would like to know more information about our church, please visit VictoryBaptistHopeMills.com or Facebook.com slash VBCHopeMills. I would also like to ask that you rate and review this podcast. And if you found this sermon helpful, please share it.